I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Kevin Gray Carr about his new book, Plotting the Prince, Shotoku Cults and the Mapping of Medieval Japanese Buddhism. This was published with the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. This book is of obvious interest to anyone working on art history, working on the history. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Kevin Gray Carr about his new book, Plotting the Prince, Shotoku Cults and the Mapping of Medieval Japanese Buddhism. This was published with the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. This book is of obvious interest to anyone working on art history, working on the history of Japan, working on the history of the medieval world and images um, in that context. But it's also, and perhaps surprisingly for listeners who don't, um, who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, a really interesting contribution to a much wider set of fields. And that's because of the thoughtfulness that Kevin brings to this topic and brings to the way he lays out the narrative and the argument of the book. Even the components that lay out the, the frame of the study, components like what does it mean to talk about a visual cult? What does cult mean in that context? Components like what does medieval mean in that context? Even those framing elements receive really careful exegesis in the course of the book, but also more deeply, kind of what's at the core of the methodology of the book and the core of the kind of argument that emerges out of the book is also presented in a way that takes apart the various components of this argument, presents it to readers in a detailed and thoughtful way, and really invites questioning of those elements, invites a thoughtful response to an engagement with those elements. And these elements include, what does it mean to talk about and to take apart the elements of an image as a visual narrative, as a story, and things like visual quotation, visual citation. What does it mean to talk about those processes and how might a scholar going, go about isolating and identifying those in the service of creating a larger argument about shifting modes of identity and the way that narrative and, and images were bound up in that identity over time. Other elements of the argument that are really interesting and that will come up, as you'll hear in our conversation, include the idea of cognitive map and cognitive mapping, and really interestingly get at some of the problems in and the opportunities related to what it might mean for a historian and for anyone working with the historical analysis of images to get at something like a cognitive map of people at a particular time, and to also be able to chart transformations in that cognitive mapping. So it's really interesting on a number of different levels. It was really interesting to talk with Kevin about it. He's extraordinarily thoughtful about all of these elements of the story that he's telling, and he really encourages um, engagement with him and with these elements of, of the book. And so I hope you enjoy. I certainly did. We're here today to talk with Kevin Gray Carr about his new book, Plotting the Prince, Shotoku Cults and the Mapping of Medieval Japanese Buddhism. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Kevin, and thank you for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Kevin, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of Japanese studies and perhaps religious studies and art history as it pertains to Japan in particular? Yeah, it's a. <laughs> that is a big question. Well, in a sense, it's a long and boring story. But uh, you know, it started in uh, high school. I uh, um, my parents told me I had to do some sort of sport. I was horrible at sports. I didn't want to run or play play with balls or team sports. So it was swimming or martial arts, and I decided to take up martial arts. And through that, I became interested in Japanese culture. And um, through that, I became interested in Zen and kind of the beat Zen and uh, DT Suzuki that sort of thing. And then. Um, I got to college wanting to study Japanese, uh, do Japanese studies, and the person they assigned me as an advisor was uh, Sam Morris at Amherst, and he's an uh, art historian, and he said, why don't you take my Arts of Asia class? I thought, oh, gosh, no way I'm interested in that. But I humored him, and I took that class, and that same semester he was offering a class on 
Han, Han art. Um, so the art of one period from one city in Japan. Very incredibly a, a specialized seminar for undergraduates. And um, of course, only one person signed up for it, and he needed three people to run the class. And so he got me and my roommate to do that. And so, sort of by by default, I ended up taking a good uh, amount of um, art history, uh, Asian art history, in uh, in undergraduate, and that got me interested in um, uh, in Japanese art in general. But I spent my junior year in Kyoto, and when I left, I was interested either doing anthropology or um, or religious studies. And what I realized in um, uh, when I was in Japan that year is that I could do religious studies and literature and history and um, all these other, uh, integrate all these other approaches through art history and spend all my time looking at beautiful pictures and traveling around the world. And I thought that's a great deal. And so I decided to go into um, apply for graduate school. Uh, I got very lucky to get into a great program. And um, then it just sort of led me on from there. But really, when I got to um, uh, graduate school, I still didn't feel like an art historian. And it's in some ways... um, this book is a product of me feeling like becoming an art historian uh, rather than a religious studies person who happened to work with official materials or, or general cultural uh, cultural history, things like that. So um, it's, uh, it, it's been an interesting sort of transformation over time as I've reconceptualized my own, uh, my own project and my own um, disciplinary approach. So can you actually say a little bit more about that? Because part of the last... Um, bit of what you just said is actually really interesting. So you're drawing a distinction here between a real art historian and a religious studies scholar that happens to work with visual materials, for example. What are some of the important differences between those two approaches for you? Well, real art historian is obviously a very loaded term, so I would probably try to take that back if I could. (laughs) Uh, But there's a... um, You know, when I... um, uh, when I arrived here, I was, uh, I was dual appointed in Asian languages and cultures and art history. And that seemed like a very natural fit for me. But what I um, realized is there's a certain set of issues that um, come from a common disciplinary and historiographical background that you have in art history um, that... I wasn't finding in uh, Asian studies. And what I love to, my Asian studies colleagues and my colleagues at, say, the Center for Japanese Studies were working on a whole different set of issues. Often in Asian studies, it might be colonialism or nation building, things like that. Um, Japanese studies, it might be something, you know, much more um, specific to the culture and the like. But um, what I found in art history, and this is partly a, a function of um, Michigan's um, very integrated um, art history department, is that my... I had as much to say to my colleagues in ancient archaeology as I did uh, into modern uh, modern architecture to everyone in between. And they were questions um, often about um, the function of images, their ontological status, the sort of uh, place within the world, how they work on people, how people create them, things like that. And so those uh, made a lot of sense to me. But, you know, really through... And probably even to the present day, I, I, I'm sort of a religious studies wannabe. I mean, most of my interests center around um, religious art, and part of that is that it's often visual material that's trying to deal with big questions, life and death and uh, the um, place of one, uh, one's place in the world. And it's often beautiful, um, but sometimes that... Um, that just sort of pure aesthetic pleasure is secondary to its uh, to, uh, its larger um, sort of payoff for the creators and the viewers, and th- it's those issues that excite me, um, especially. And you know, I think of someone like um, uh, Buzzy Tizer at um, uh, at Princeton, who very much uses a lot of um, uh, visual material in his work, um, like the Ten Kings and the the Wheel of uh, Wheel of uh, Existence, things like that. But ultimately, he's interested in questions that are. Um, native to, I think, religious studies discipline. And um, I might work with the same material. And in fact, one of my colleagues worked on Ten Kings and was interested in a whole different set of uh, questions about transmission of images and uh, the meaning of um, those, uh, the, the relationship of different media to each other, things like that. And so for me, um, it's not an either-or proposition. And there, there's times when I'm in one mode or the other. Like, for example, I wrote an article on Shotoku Relics, which is for the, uh, for the Journal of Japanese Studies. And that's 
basically, as I see it in religious studies foray, um, with you know the uh, the visual argument is is uh, minimal, um, whereas other things I try to put the visual to the fr- uh, to the front, and I think what's the important um, for me the important thing is that you know we're all historians so the history would be sort of the master discipline uh which we're contributing to and there's textual historians there's literary historians there's um you know religious uh, uh religious historians and as a art historian my job is to treat the image as well because almost invariably the um, conventional historians will read a lot more than me and better um literary historians will have a much more subtle understanding of text and functions so what can I do in that uh, in that process? And that's uh, to work with images um, very actively. And what I like about that is they often they don't tell the same story. Uh, in fact, when I was trying to teach, a, uh, we were, I was talking to one of my colleagues about teaching, doing a team talk course on medieval Japan. You know, she's a historian and I'm a an art historian. And I'd say, oh, I have this great, you know, these great images of uh, of disease from the 12th century. And she says, oh yeah, I have some uh, good material on disease from you know uh, from 1483 or something like that. Totally different context, and they wouldn't match up. But what I tried to do in this book, particularly, is um, look at very well trod territory. I mean, there's I haven't dared to count it, but there's probably a hundred books on um, uh, Shotoku um, belief, uh, man, maybe 50 books, on Shotoku belief um, uh, written in Japanese. and But they're almost all written from a, um, a textual standpoint. And so what happens if I try and tell that same story uh, using images? Um, and of course, I, you know, I can't ignore the text, uh, but thinking about what kind of contribution I can make and what kind of... Um, uh, new uh, insights I can offer, it's primarily going to be through a particular selection of a corpus of images and interpretation of that um, within a uh, culturally specific way. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the book itself um, that we're talking about today looks at the figure of some of the, you've mentioned, Prince uh, Shotoku, about Mm -hmm. whom we'll talk about later. And the focus of one of, this is, as you've kind of alluded to, the focus of one of the most widespread visual cults in Japanese history. Now, you're arguing in the book also that narrative art was a really powerful tool that helped people negotiate religious, political, and cultural identities and really helped them make sense of their world in visual means. So how did you come to this figure and this topic in particular? Well, you know, um, a good Shotoku believer would tell you that he came to uh, uh, came to have a dream. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a dream. Uh, I didn't have dreams about Shotoku until after the uh, after I started this project, so I can't blame that. Um, it was probably uh, in my, I think my second year of graduate school. I took a seminar with my uh, advisor on Yamatoe, which is sort of Japanese style painting. Um, and one of the great early monuments of Yamatoe painting is the 1069 uh, Hodu, uh, the images of Shotoku from 1069 at Hodoyuji Picture Hall that I talk about in the latter half of the book. And um, I did my final uh, presentation and paper on that. Um, and but that was relatively early on, and I thought I wanted to do uh, my dissertation on Shugendo, these mountain cults, and then everyone told me there's no good art about that. They were wrong, but um, I trusted them with that. Then I wanted to do it on Arhats, and someone said, uh, and they told me that's too complex a topic, so I, I, I scuttled that. Um, and Shotoku kept coming back. Once I uh, sort of heard his name and started paying attention, he was everywhere. And especially once I um, dived into the uh, this, the subject, We'd be in class or we'd be in any conversation and I'd say, oh, the Shotoku is related to that or Shotoku did this or Shotoku's here. And so I, I saw Shotoku everywhere. So I thought, you know, it's a um, good opportunity for my, um, uh, one moment, please. <sighs> There's some... Uh, sorry about that. There's some bell in the background that uh, that just rang. I don't know. Oh, that's okay. You can, we can just continue. It's cool. Okay. It's musical, um, like music accompaniment. Right, know. exactly. You'll, you'll, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so, in any event, Shotoku, um, uh, I was seeing Shotoku everywhere, and I found this very exciting. Uh, exciting. And uh, so I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to pursue this. And I had an interesting set of uh, conversations with my advisor. Before I left for Japan to do my research, my... Um, one of my advisors uh, uh, said to me, 
um, you know, keep it narrow, keep it focused. You know, basically, you have to finish this eventually is what he was trying to say, I think. And um, it was, uh, you know, he was right. Um, and, you know, I think it's good advice that I would, you know, give similar advice to my students. You know, don't, don't try and uh, do too much. But then I got to Japan and my advisor there said, if you're building a great house, you need to be build a very big wide hole first so dig deep and wide and, and in a sense like dig yourself in and then um you know and, and i think both are good advice and i don't really know how to resolve the two but you know shotoka really is such a sort of wide thing uh, but within that i chose for my dissertation work to work on these um uh, medieval uh, hanging scrolls at the beginning of his life and that's a it's a huge set of material, 50, probably um, 50, image, 50 sets from medieval Japan up through about like 17th century uh, or so. And each of them might have anywhere from one to 10 um, scrolls within that. But that's still a, a, a limited set. Um, but the range of Shotoku art is immense. And I, I mean, you could fill volumes upon volumes. In fact, they are. Uh, there are volumes of Shotoku art. So um, it's a, it was a good topic for me to uh, be able to learn a little bit, a little bit about the Zen sect or Shin sect or um, uh, sculpture and painting and architecture and all these other things. And so I, I was, um, once I sort of found Shotoku, it made a whole lot of sense uh, to pursue it because it was just um, a, uh, just a sort of great sprawling topic with uh, implications um, in all sorts of different fields. Now, what was the transition from dissertation to book like? If you could speak to that really briefly, were there any major transformations in the narrative? Any surprises along the way? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I I started. Uh, I mean, the dissertation is this. Gosh, it's got to be over like five hundred pages. Uh, I mean, it's just this big monster, um, and it's sort of an old style dissertation. Uh, and I've noticed that in recent years. It's much more common to have dissertations, 250, 300 pages, uh, much uh, more lean uh, dissertations. And they're much closer to what looks like a book already. Um, so it's like they're a rough draft for a book. Um, my advisor, uh, for better or for worse, made it very clear that this is basically, a, I think this is his phrase, a personal letter to your advisor. Um, and so you... And you would include everything. I mean, I, I, I love the pages in my dissertation where I had two lines of body text and the rest just footnotes. And the next page would be the same. And, you know, that, and you have, uh, you know, I probably had 50 pages of, of appendices and, you know, all these other things. And, you know, you can include any image you want. I, I, for art historians, I mean, this is, this is especially um, uh, traumatic when I started to write the book, is to realize how few images I could use. But, you know, in a dissertation, I could just sort of go wild. And so um, the original manuscript I came up with that I, when I converted my um, what I thought was converting my dissertation into a, a book manuscript uh, was at least twice as long as uh, what this uh, book manuscript uh, became. And um, they do what's called a manuscript workshop here at, at Michigan. It's a very generous thing where the senior faculty will get together and read all your material. They'll invite someone from uh, another university to come. In this case, is was the person from Yale who came, and they read it and they gave me advice. And their advice was cut it in half. You have two books here. Um, and... The trouble was, the part that I really loved at that moment was the latter half, but it was speculative. There's a lot of uh, jumps that I was making and a, and a lot of um, methodological stretches um, that um, were probably pretty risky for a first book. So um, instead, I basically, uh, as I said, I cut, uh, cut down most of that speculative material and really focused it on a, quite a narrow, um, uh, a narrow topic. So the first half of the book is a sort of overview of Shotoku cults seen through um, visual material. The second part is thinking about the origins of that, sort of what, what's the origins of medieval Shotoku, and I go to this 1069 um, uh, set from Horyuji and focus basically the latter half of the book on that. And that's a much more, um, a much smaller, um, or much more focused topic than uh, the original. I think it's been um, a good process. Uh, I mean, I... I I think the, a lot of that material that was in the dissertation is um, lost to the ages. Uh, I mean, if someone wants to read the dissertation, they're more than welcome to. But I, I don't think that's ever going to um, you know, be published in uh, some uh, journal or article or something like that. Um, but th what I do have, um, it forced me to um, think hard about what was happening there. Why 
why should anyone care about this um, obscure set of paintings from you know one temple in Japan? And uh, and so this is where I started to think about notions of um, cognitive mapping, about um, is how people structure the world, and not just. Um, Spatially, but also temporally, and that that really um, is fundamental to the Shotoku story, at least as I'm telling it. Great, thank you. So, as we move into the book itself, um, why don't we get started by really explaining who this figure is? So, we've mentioned Shotoku. You've talked a little bit about the genesis of the project in terms of the extant literature. Who is um, the who was rather the historical Shotoku, and what does that have to do with the historic or iconic? perhaps cultic figure that emerges in the course of the narrative that you're telling? Well, Shotoku, um, well, I, I should preface this by about the time I, I was in maybe my second year of writing this, a scholar in Japan named Oyama Seichi wrote a book that said, um, argued that Shotoku did not exist. And this was actually not a, um, a lot of people don't know that, but it's not a new argument. They said uh, they had um, come up with this 40 years before, but it really hit the sort of mainstream media, and it was a very big deal. Um, and it was part of a larger um, movement within Japanese studies, uh, Japanese history, to sort of rethink um, Japanese history and kind of pull down some of the idols. And Shotoku would be one of the most sort of iconic figures in that. Um, but I'm pretty sure he existed, or something like him existed. Um, and you know, if uh, the dates we have is 574 to 622 or 623 around that time. So he's a sixth and seventh century um, uh, uh, figure, but the earliest texts we have about him are uh, things like the Nihon Shoki from uh, from the early eighth century. So what I what I found interesting about him is from the start we're talking about a distance of about a hundred years where he's already been recreated, and there's a strong um, uh, strong possibility that a lot of what's attributed to him was uh, really done by Suiko, with, who was his aunt, and she was the empress at the time. But because of later um, conceptions of uh, female sovereigns, they took a lot of that away and sort of made Shotoku as the regent, the main sort of mover of that time. So there's a great deal of interesting uh, work um, done and to be done on um, the so-called real Shotoku. And I'd refer uh, your listeners to a book like um, Michael Como's book on Shotoku, and that's that's much more interested in the historical time of, of the real Shotoku from the 7th century. But actually, when I heard that, uh, you know, this prominent scholar was arguing Shotoku didn't exist, I was initially disturbed, and I thought, that's great. You know, in a sense, I, I'm writing this story about um, sort of this empty center, and um, it's a... I think I even refer to him in the book somewhere as a sort of cipher into which people can, you know, pour in all their different ideas and hopes and dreams. And so from the 8th century on, um, he's already this sort of imaginary figure. Uh, but it's always couched in the language of history. And, uh, you know, I have some passages in the book, and there's more in the dissertation about, you know, people really thought of this as history. You know, I, I, I struggle with the word legend because, you know, legend implies that we already know that's not true or there's some, um, uh, that it's, it's something different from history. But mo- most all of the medieval writers on Shotoku were writing history, for, uh, or writing what they thought of as the, the factual real story. And um, I think that keeping that in mind is important for, one, understanding that whether or not Shotoku existed, people thought he existed, and this imaginary figure had a huge influence on Japanese cultural history. Uh, so... Um, that's, you know, and if he didn't, if the actual figure didn't exist, that's a great story. Um, and also, he's a, um, he was constantly shifting. Um, but one of the things I uh, suggest in, uh, in the book is that the sort of hagiographic um, process is not one of argumentation and removal. So it's not someone's, uh, one, say, the Tendai sect says Shotoku was a Lotus uh, adherent, and he wrote this great Lotus commentary. And then the Zen sect will come along and say, no, 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 he didn't. He was interested in the Lotus. He was interested in Zen, and he was a good friend of Bodhidharma, and we can tell that story. Now, those seem like they're contradictory stories, but instead what you get is this agglutinative biography um, that you just keep adding things on to Shotoku. And so the next next group that comes along and wants to lay claim to Shotoku's authority, they, they'll, they'll draw some specific connection to themselves, whether it be material, historical, things like, or, or legendary um, sort of stories that they'll tell. 
But then um, they'll also be uh, they'll also be tapping into all those other connections, and so it's it's this um, increasingly sprawling, uh, difficult figure. Um, and so by you know I, I very much cut off the story before say about sixteen hundred, when even more layers are added to Shotoku, and of course in the twentieth century. Um, Shotoku uh, becomes uh, tied up with um, the politics of uh, East Asian expansion of the uh, of Japan during World War II, and in fact, one of the challenges I faced is a lot of the temples, especially the um, Pure Land temples that I visited, were embarrassed about their Shotoku, uh, uh, the Shotoku connections, because during the war. Uh, you um, people would be asked, "Who do you most admire?" And the only answer you'd come uh, you were able to say would be the emperor, of course. But Pure Land adherents um, didn't necessarily feel that way. But one of the answers they could give that was considered acceptable was Shotoku, and Shotoku was considered one of their patriarchs. But he was also a patriarch of the Japanese nation state, as it was conceived of in, the, uh, in that time. And so there. The temples brought out their Shotoku uh, images and said, isn't this great? We have this long-standing connection with the imperial family. And then after the war, they said, oh, well, that was kind of embarrassing. And they put them in the back of their um, uh, storage houses and and really tried to um, suppress uh, some of that. And so I would often go to these places where the paintings or the sculptures were in in disrepair or sort of pushed off to the side um, uh, because of this um, more recent history. So he said, but... Each of those sort of iterations didn't necessarily negate what came before; just added and added to this uh, this hulking sort of cultural uh, cultural phenomenon. And I think at one point in the book, when you're talking about this additive nature of or creative nature of the histories of um, Shotoku, you actually mentioned that perhaps archaeology is a better metaphor for understanding how to get at these different layers than you know what we typically think of as chronological history. Right. right yeah. And I, I think it's um. I mean, I. Of, part of that is my wider interest in, in archaeological theory, but the uh, I, I think certainly it felt like trying to peel layers back. And of course, I'm interested in what Shotoku was in the 7th century, the 8th century, the 9th century, things like that. Um, but you know, in order to look at any piece, I sort of have to, uh, I sort of feel like I'd be pulling back one layer and see another thing and another thing, and then be just sort of going deeper and deeper and deeper into this, uh, into this sort of always shifting core. And, uh, and it was, that's an exciting, uh, sort of exciting and disturbing thing for a, um, a researcher to try to pursue because it always seems to be one more step that you don't have access to. And ultimately we don't know who Shotoku was or even, ex- even if he existed. And that's, um, that's, I think one of the um, thrilling things about his uh, his story, basically. Now, one of the things that you're getting at in these comments is you're getting at, on some level, the at least what this reader perceived to be the centrality of different ways of thinking about identity in the book, and that's not just the identity of this figure, but also the identity of the creators and um, audiences for these images, and ultimately the identity of Japan um, as a unit and as a concept. Now. You, you get here and you get to that point by giving us what you describe at the beginning of the book as a case study in the development of cognitive maps of the world. Mm-hmm. These maps that were developed through storytelling, uh, visual storytelling, actually in really interesting ways that I hope we'll get to um, later on in the conversation, that imagined this figure, this cultural hero that was grounded in really distinct forms of space. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of the cognitive map? In, in what way does this structure, the kind of argument that you're telling, and why was this particular concept so central for helping you think through and narrating the story of Shotoku in this larger context? That's a good question. Um, I think you asked earlier about the transition from dissertation to book. I'll have to look back. I'm almost certain I didn't use any term like that in uh, in my original uh, um, dissertation work. And you know, sometimes I'm frustrated by reading, um, especially first books, where you know here's someone who's worked for a decade on uh, some topic, and they finally come out with this book, and it's been gutted in some way, and then they add some sort of theoretical. Um, uh, 
what, what seems like a theoretical afterthought to it that does it is it really inherent to the immaterial and that perhaps would be something I think that would uh, you know uh, seem to be the case in uh, in here that I've just sort of added this cognitive map idea but what I realized is that's really what I was getting at uh, or, or was pursuing through the whole thing and especially if you can widen um, your concept of of uh, think of a map both as a spatial and temporal thing, um, and so thinking about how people in Japan, say in med- medieval Japan, are situating themselves uh, in relationship to um, continental authority, but also the, uh, the sort of temporal distance from, say, Shakyamuni or, or Chinese masters. And the other is, uh, I think, my um, uh, opening, the opening quote I th- in my uh, beginning of the introduction is about um, to to read a map is to tell a story. Um, and uh, so looking at a map is a kind of story. And so this, it's a, um, the notion of a map is perhaps a real cartographer really be really annoyed by um, using it so, uh, so broadly, but I'm thinking of these maps, um, both cognitive, like in people's heads and uh, as they're manifest on, on uh, in visual, uh, visual images that they are, structuring um, one's temporal and spatial relationship to the world and their kind of story. Um, and the, st- uh, the story is mapped onto that. And that's, you know, it's sort of a, um, a plotting title, but plotting the prince is getting exactly at that. Plotting both as, you know, you you, uh, you plot on a map, you, you decide a certain point on a map, but also in plotting, you know, telling, uh, telling a story. And I think both of those are at play here. Um, what I didn't realize when I came up with this term cognitive map um, was that it actually um, has a very eminent uh, background with Jameson. You know, um, I for- completely forgot that he mentioned that at the end of his, uh, his famous essay on what cultural logic of you know, capitalism. And, uh, the, um, it, it, and I realized that I had to, and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, I had to sort of disentangle it from that. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's the same sort of idea. It's trying to represent something that's um, ultimately unrepresentable, I think. And so here's um, people who are looking at these images, hearing these stories, and trying to figure out their place within um, the Buddhist universe, um, wh- how they relate to um, the uh, what it means to be this country. Uh, and it's it's often described, uh, Japan is often described as one of the millet-scattered countries. Millet is this little grain that you just sort of throw out. Um, you imagine it's sort of thrown out onto the, the waves and just sort of floating out on the waves. And if you look at even some maps from Japan, of the world, Japan is just this little sort of afterthought at the edge of the universe. And so, what does it mean to be in that position? Well, ultimately, what I argue in the book is that Shotoku is one means by which they can say that not only do we have access to those um, uh, those sources of power um, in um, the past and the uh, the distant, uh, physically distant, and temporally distant past in, say, Shakyamuni, um, through Shotoku and his previous lives and his connections, but it more radically, um, it doesn't matter. We don't need all those things. In fact, the new center of Buddhism um, is in Japan itself. And so you get this uh, wonderful sort of notion that um, at Shtennoji, one of the temples associated with Shotoku, that Gurdjakuta, the uh, um, vulture peak, uprooted itself and flew to Japan and you know, plopped itself down there. So we don't need to go to India because we have it all here. And th- this is what I was uh, talking about, sort of the, um, recentering of the world. And so this um, this cognitive, uh, this notion of a cognitive map is the way that, uh, is trying to get at the way that these Images and stories and the ritual context can reshape people's uh, view of the world, so that they uh, so that they see them uh, they, they replot the world. Um, so they, they see um, themselves perhaps at the center rather than the periphery. Uh, that um, the or that time begins with Shotoku rather in uh, the sort of key authoritative time begins with Shotoku rather than with Shakyamuni and and those new conceptions, those new cognitive maps that lodge in people's brains then affect the way that they see other art, they read other other texts, they engage with other other people. That, uh, and so it's that, um, kind, uh, that process where that map is created and then, um, and then exported or, or becomes a filter uh, for understanding the world as a whole. Thank you. And as you, as we work through the book, um, you start us off 
at the beginning of the book, laying out three major elements of these cognitive maps of Shotoku's life that are going to come up in different ways for the remainder of the analysis. Each of these is actually linked to a particular kind of medium that also you're going to take us through and explain the importance of. So you've already kind of alluded to this, but these three elements um, that you lay out here are place, and this is linked to cartography, both in the form of a landscape and in the form of a map, time, which is linked to narrative painting, which is going to become really important, um, especially in the second half of the book, and also person, and this is linked to iconic portraiture. Now, as we move through um, the parts of the book, there are two parts of the book in particular. Part one really takes on this issue that we kind of alluded to before, which is the issue of changing identities mm-hmm. of Shotoku over time. And this is this is true in a number of different ways, and it takes a number of different forms. It talks about not only something that you kind of mentioned before, the way that Shotoku became associated with other religious figures like Shakyamuni, um, but also the ways in which... Um, this figure becomes one that simultaneously can move around and exist kind of every place, Mm -hmm. but winds up really interestingly taking on a very particular Japanese identity Mm -hmm. and Japanese import. So can you talk a little bit to that? Because the the first chapters of the book really emphasize these dual, um, really interesting, but interestingly mutually constitutive aspects of Shotoku's identity. On the one hand, this um, changing manifestation in different visual and written media as a bodhisattva, um, as a person who passes through multiple lives, some of them being in China, but at the same time ultimately turning out to be, in this period, a uniquely Japanese figure. What does that mean, and how do you, how are those two aspects of Shotoku reconciled with uh, respect to these visual sources that we have? Well, it's, it's a key question, I think, and I appreciate you formulating it that way. Uh, I think that... You know, Shotoku, well, any any religious um, figure, especially say, uh, I'll just speak within uh, say East Asian Buddhism, that they you a a promoter or creator of that figure needs to figure out a balance between the sort of transcendent and the local. So you have a, a image of an arhat, you know, some uh, Buddhist saint. If he looks too strange, then it's very hard to relate to, and it doesn't seem, maybe it doesn't seem like a viable model for your own practice, or it doesn't um, seem like someone who would care about your concerns. But if it's too familiar looking, it would look like just, you know, Joshmo, or, or um, uh, what would be the Buddhist equivalent of that, um, Joshmo uh, monk uh, from down the street that, you know, doesn't look like anything special. And so there's that, that pull back and forth uh, that I think you have in almost any um, sort of uh, religious. Uh, depiction of a religious figure between the sort of transcendent and the accessible mogul. And certainly within, say, sculptural history, at least in Japan, you, you see that, um, you see those poles, go, um, you see a transfer between those poles constantly. Um, in the case of Shotoku specifically, he, because he's used over time, there's, there's um, early on, um, Shotoku is, and I, I think I characterize it this way as a bridge. He's he's someone uh, someone who gives us access to uh, all these uh, all these other figures like um, Bodhidharma, like Hui Se, the uh, um, Chinese uh, um, uh, sage teacher of Juri, uh, people like Shakyamuni and the like. So we can through we can if we connect ourselves to Shotoku, then we have that link to those other ones. But then you see sort of his post-biographies um, that he gets reborn as all these other people, like Kukai, for example. And, um, and, uh, and uh, he has these sort of um, constant sort of uh, reproductions or uh, re, uh, recorporalizations that, uh, that you have. And that's a, a way that links this incredible sort of range of uh, sacred authority in this one figure. But then I started to think, well, wait a minute, what does this mean? And it's it's a kind of question, uh, you know, to ask, you know, what is reborn is a sort of first-year Buddhism type uh, question. So, you know, I think a, a you know, hardcore religious studies person w- uh, would say that's, you know, well, of course they, you know, 
they don't really take no self seriously or, or that, um, that it doesn't quite work that way. But, you know, what I found in um, medieval texts is people saying, you know, using the, uh, the notion of non-self and uh, thinking about rebirth and, you know, what is Shotoku, that that was actually something uh, at the time that was important to them. And so this this identity of Shotoku, because if there's not some sort of constant um, identity that carries through all his different lives as Lady Shimala, as Waisa, Shotoku, and beyond, then those connections are, are sort of arbitrary. They don't, they don't mean much. And so there has to be some sort of uh, core that links that. And when you... And I don't think I solved that issue, uh, but really what I was trying to do is just point out it uh, pointed out as an issue. And I think what you eventually get is a way that um, Shotoku is a um, is a core identity that that uh, is a sort of um, core figure. Um, the actual Prince Shotoku, sort of thinking of the eighth century uh, figure, um, is a core identity that becomes. Um, Sort of truly transcendent. His his biography goes uh, essentially uh, unlimited directions in uh, both directions from Shakyamuni up to the present day. But if he just remains that, he's no different, say, from Kanon Bosatsu, uh, Kanon Bodhisattva, like uh, Guan Yin, um, a you know any any other uh, body, uh, any other Bodhisattva that sort of it can be everywhere and, and everything to everyone. And so, what really makes him special is that. It's no doubt. Uh, it's very clear that he's completely Japanese. That he's, um, you know, he, uh, he's um, born in Japan. He uh, he's particularly interested in. Um, uh, he's the founder, uh, considered the founder of Japanese Buddhism, but also in many ways the founder of the Japanese state. Um, you know, he establishes all these uh, Chinese-style court ranks and different uh, different. Uh, he entertains all these uh, embassies from uh, the Korean Peninsula and from China, and really he's at this sort of beginning, not only of sort of Japanese. Um, religious identity, but sort of state identity. And I think that's a very interesting uh, position uh, to be in. And then people, um, and I suggested that, you know, he doesn't have much to do with the Kami tradition, with what we think of as sort of Shinto, broadly conceived. But he is sort of an ancestor to everyone because his line, at least uh, according to legend, was completely wiped out in, uh, in, in 643. So he doesn't his his descendants don't exist anymore. His blood descendants don't exist anymore. But because of that, then he's sort of open season for anyone to claim, and everyone does claim him as sort of uh, being their their shotoku. And so it's this, um, uh, and you so you get the same um, ambiguity between the transcendent and local in shotoku. Um, but his local identity means a great deal because he then becomes the source for um, uh, for some sort of notion of Japanese-ness in, in early medieval Japan. And that's, um, in a sense, the subject of my next book, is trying to, uh, to really unpack what people are talking about when they're talking about, um, and there's lots of Japanese terms for this, but Japan or um, the, um, the Japanese country or nation or something like that, uh, nation probably the wrong word, but when they're talking about that in, say, the uh, 12th, 13th, 14th century. And oftentimes they're using Shotoku as a way to talk about that sort of um, particular unique identity. Yeah, and I think you actually say in the book um, at one point that it's not only that the stories of his life are taking place in Japan, but also you can read the story of his life as the story of Japan in relation to a larger world context that it's part of. And, and importantly, you can go to the sites associated with them. You can uh, you can see these places, uh, and so at Honyuji, very definitely, you're right there where a lot of this happened. Um, but then, when you take those off the walls and they become sort of portable uh, hanging scrolls, someone off in the provinces um, can either imagine going to these places, and they're it's familiar, uh, familiar landscapes and the like that that is at least possible to go to. Um, but also, at least one of the things I argue is that, and this starts at Hodyuchi, but I think it happens in many other uh, cases, is that telling the story of Shotoku is a way to reconstitute him as an object of, of iconic worship. And so, you know, I have this ugly phrase, the icon narrative, um, a combined icon and narrative, and it's... Uh, you know, it's it's sort of clunky, but it, it gets exactly at uh, what I'm talking about. These objects that are narrative in, in form, but um, they function ritually as iconic uh, images. And so you get these sets of uh, of Shoto, uh, sets of paintings depicting Shotoku's life, which are extremely extensive. If you if you told the whole story, it would take hours and hours, and sometimes uh, bent to modern rituals, so it takes days. But that then, um, those uh, those stories are 
kind of an, they by telling that story, you you create a kind of uh, person, and uh, and then this is the relationship. What I was talking about between place and person and time and all that sort of thing coming together in uh, in a ritual context, and and it's also an unstable combination because all, all these, um, as I, uh, I mentioned in the epilogue, all these sort of pieces are hard to hold together, and especially for an artist trying to integrate them fully. Um, it it's um, quite a quite a challenge, and even you know, and you could see from my uh, uh, analysis of the um, uh, paintings of Ho- at Horyuji that even that doesn't fully succeed. That it's sort of, uh, there's a lot of sort of strange matches and, and ambiguities. And so Shotoku is um, this very fertile core, but it's also um, we get this right centrifugal. Um, that you know the, the pieces of him, uh, these sort of different aspects of the, the time and place and uh, and uh, um, and person sort of fall off. So you get portraits of Shotoku. You get. Um, uh, Play a straight maps of sacred sites. You have um, hand scrolls of his narrative, things like that, and those become more prominent over time. I mean, let's actually move to these um, to these visual narratives specifically because this is what the second half of the book is all about. Now, in um, and but before I mention that, I think in saying that um, the story of this particular really extreme case is particularly difficult because the pieces don't hold together. I think one of the things you might be doing here is actually quite profound. I mean, you might be giving us an extreme case that winds up proving the rule, which is, I think if we looked more broadly at any kind of object or identity, we might, using this example and moving from this example, also see really anything, even those things that seem like they are kind of the most coherent, also turning out to be pieces uneasily held together to form part of a kind of shifting whole. So I think this is actually perhaps not, you know, one of the kind of issues, uh, problematic issues in the kind of story that's being told here, but perhaps one of the most profound contributions um, of this of the book. So we'll get there. <laughs> but sort of, <laughs> well, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you point that out because that's, um, in many ways, what I am trying to get at in Shotoku. I mean, Shotoku seems like a very specific topic uh, to, uh, to uh, approach, but my part of my reason for choosing him and, and for making a shorter book that might be um, less expensive and more accessible to, uh, to more people is to sort of paint a par- uh, paint a picture of a paradigm of um, in this case sacred identity and um, impliedly so, or um, hopefully inspire some people to think uh, of a whole range of different um, uh, different identities not only um, Sort of individual identities, like uh, basically this story of a um, famous monk or something like that, but also collective identities, and that's something that I've been thinking about more recently about how a community starts to think of themselves um, and um, uh, form a picture of themselves. Again, a sort of cognitive map about where they they um, they are situated in the world, and I think that's a um, you know it's I, I think this is where again a, um, a, a, a looking at the visual material is a good a good approach because one of the certainly for medieval uh, medieval sects that were trying to promote um, uh, pr- uh, promote their particular institution, images were great because they could, um, other than the expense, they could unify a lot of people. Uh, so you and I might look at the same image or hear the same, uh, experience the same ritual and be picking up on different things, but then feel very. Um, both feel this sort of sense of emotion and the other person seems to be feeling the same emotion. So we're, we can be unified in the way that perhaps a sort of pure discursive text might not or, or, or might not allow us that ambiguity. But it's also that precisely that ambiguity that was a problem because if you were trying to um, uh, maintain an orthodoxy and uh, maintain a sort of a, a cleanliness to that, uh, a clean borders and a sort of and a um, specificity to that identity, it's very hard with visual art because it, um, it isn't um, so straightforward and it, uh, it it has these different aspects of it, and so I think that's um, something that I, I'm certainly wanting to pursue in my my you know subsequent work. Right, and even though these are not explicitly sort of verbal discursive sources, you are showing quite explicitly, I think, in the book that there is a kind of discourse in these verbal or in these rather visual sources, and you use phrases like visual assertion visual quotation, visual statements. So let's actually, um, I don't want to let you go before talking a little bit about uh, this um, main set of paintings that really occupies most of the second half of the book. So part two of the book looks at the functions of 
of this cultic art around Shotoku by looking at the Japanese religious landscape as it's manifest in two, but one in particular, um, sort of sources of visual culture. Uh, one is the now lost 8th century, um, a set of images that are now lost from the 8th century. But the one that really receives most of the attention in the book is this set of Horyuji picture hall images that you've been mentioning that were made in 1069. Now, because this is, again, such a central part of uh, the close analysis that happens in the second half of the book, it's such an important part of the source base around which we're developing this argument. Can you speak a little bit about these sources? Um, can you talk about what is this compound and the structure of the compound and how would a viewer um, in particular, because this is really important, looking at these paintings have experienced the paintings? It's a great question. You know, it's um, a lot of what drove my initial dissertation research was wanting to answer a question that I pretty much knew was unanswerable. And that is, how did people use these and what what did that do to them? How did that affect them? And it's really, really hard to get at that um, because there's, um, and, you know, I, I was looking at a whole range of these uh, large hanging scrolls, but there's almost never a text that says, you know, um, Bob and Jean and Bill and I went to um, at this, uh, um, this ritual at such and such a temple. This person was speaking and uh, these other people were there. They said this about the images. The images look like this, and you know, was uh, and this is how we felt. Nothing, nothing even near like that. Um, but the nice thing about Shotoku um, is that, um, and you know, you can uh, refer to um, Kami, uh, Ikumi Kaminishi's book, uh, the um, uh, called Etoki Japanese Story. Oh. Pictorial exegesis, I, I, but it's called Etoki, E-T-O-K-I, and she talks about these um, uh, ritual exegesis of pictures, and that really excited me because uh, a lot of that, uh, the early material, and you can find that I think in chapter two of her book, a lot of that uh, material, um, it comes from Shotoku uh, stories, so we actually know a lot more about how these images were used. Part of the reason why I wanted to, uh, to work on, on these particular images is they're Real, it's it's almost uh, you know it's been they've been repeated so much. There's there's it's really hard to say anything intelligent about their style and things like that. But that's primarily how people have uh, treated them as sort of 11th century um, what 11th century painting looks like. And what I was what I, the one thing that I think hasn't changed over all the centuries and the different uh, um, uh, changes is the um, composition. So what does that composition? What does that sort of layout? Uh, what does that layout mean? In order to understand that, you have to understand its architectural space, and I, that's part of the reason why I have these um, uh, some of these diagrams where you kind of have a U shape uh, to the, uh, the image to give you some sense of how this is at least a half panorama, uh, you know, a, a semi panorama. And then, so in, in a particular architectural space, and that, that architectural space is really quite fascinating because it's a this dual hall. So on one side you have the picture hall, and on the other side you have the relic hall. And so just in terms of the architecture, there's some equivalency being made between relics and um, narrative painting, uh, which is, a, I think, a really important, uh, important point. And then if you take a step farther out, this is in the eastern precinct of, of Horyuji, uh, this uh, famous temple um, supposedly where, uh, on the site of Shotoku's um, original palace, uh, original um, uh, mansion. And you have a dual structure in that, uh, in that temple. So you have the western precinct and the eastern precinct. The western precinct looks like the kind of temple you might expect to see in a lot of places in, you know, Korea or China, things like that. And it has a pagoda, it has a golden hall, it has a lecture hall, and it has also the parts, uh, and, you know, there are different configurations, but it has all of the basic parts of a, um, uh, of a conventional Buddhist temple in East Asia, you know, in the, uh, say, um, 7th century. But the western, uh, the eastern precinct um, is dedicated to Shotoku, and it started, you know, about a hundred years after Shotoku's birth. And it's really um, the, um, and at the center of it is uh, this dream hall, this um, uh, this um, octagonal uh, hall, um, supposedly where Shotoku would go into sort of his meditations and he'd fly to China, things like that. And then right up to this, uh, right on, on its main axis is this um, image hall. Um, uh, image hall and um, uh, relic hall. And so it's a, uh, 
part of the reason why this, uh, or I think this is an interesting piece, one, it's age, you know, it's, uh, it's one of the sort of earliest paintings of this sort of, uh, the scale and style that we have, but also um, that it really shows a very different conception of, uh, of sacred imagery, sacred presence, than what you see in the Western precinct and in, in general in sort of standard you know, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist um, temple layouts. And so there's something very different going on, and it involves sculpture and painting and architecture and ritual, and all of that we have at least some access to um, as historians. And so that's um, uh, an exciting payoff for people who'd want to try to understand um, how art might function um, in um, at a specific time in, say, the 11th century, but then how it continues to function over time. Now, and in the final chapter of the book before the epilogue, in the course of describing these paintings and talking about their significance, you describe what you're doing in this chapter as a kind of concept or a story of a conceptual remapping that happens in the 13th and 14th centuries. And you state here that in this period, a mature cognitive map of Japan with multiple sacred centers reliant on sources of religious authority that weren't from the continent, um, but that also weren't from Japanese capitals, emerged. This is a large and it's an important argument that you're making here. Can you explain how Shotoku gives you access to this kind of argument. So what is Shotoku and this figure and the iconography of this picture of this figure, or rather the visual narratives that are inherent in this particular site um, about this figure, how does this lead to this kind of dramatic um, conceptual remapping? Or conversely, um, how does this kind of dramatic conceptual remapping, how is that reflected in images of Shotoku um, and his life or lives? Mm-hmm. Well, some of it is, you know, the, exactly the kind of... Um, uh, visual argument that you were talking about as using terms like visual rhetoric, visual argument that um, would seem, I think, kind of loopy to someone outside of art history or not terribly sympathetic to it. Um, for example, I have an um, image of Shtenoji Temple and then there's a um, Tori Gate, uh, sort of a Shinto-style gate, and then Mount Fuji. And I argue that because of the particular layout of that, it implies that... Um, it gets complex, but it, it implies that um, uh, Fuji is a kind of pure land, um, and just because of the way it's uh, set up. Now, that's a visual argument being made that's um, uh, that's may not have been explicit at the time, but I think actually carry, uh, carries through. Another one, I um, you know, I argue about um, Shotoku, uh, you know, being um, flying up right above his grave and things, implications like that. So there's things you could draw from uh, from the images to uh, sort of um, uh, try and understand sort of how they might be reconceptualizing the world. But specifically with the 11th century uh, images, these are um, unlike most of the uh, the uh, Shotoku uh, art that I, I recount in the book. This is in a specific place, fixed wall paintings. Basically, they're they're on silk, but um, they were they're fixed uh, like as panels on the wall. And so there's only one place in the world that it makes sense to look at these. They're now in Tokyo, so it's, it sort of takes us out of that. But what I uh, suggest is this is kind of um, window. Uh, I think I even use the word sacred panopticon, where you're looking out uh, onto this uh, space and it shows you, and this gets back to uh, in the direction where I talk about the really real and the world as it appears, this sort of gives you a um, view of the world just like um, when you go up to the top of the Empire State Building there's, uh, or a place like that there'd often be like a, a photograph of the same view and then it'll point out to you which is, you know, this is uh, you know such and such a bridge, and this is uh, the river, that sort of thing, and you can sort of see the world that way. So that it functions in a very specific way at a very specific moment, and so what that does, and and, and partly because it's a genius of the um, uh, of the creators and the, the particular moment, that it allows you to see this um, vision of the sacred world. And at this, um, in the the core center is um, uh, is where you're standing right there. So that's a pretty powerful vision. Um, but then what ha- uh, what happens is you uh, when not every uh, the latter history of Shotoku cults, especially by the say 13th century, is primarily not at centers like Horyuji, the sort of traditional centers of Shotoku belief, but often the provinces. So like um, you know way um, way off in, in northeastern Japan, for example, sort of near present day Tokyo, places like that, and 
those places have no direct physical connection to Shotoku, uh, but then this creates this this problem of having this connection back uh, back to Shotoku. But you then uh, find ways that they will try to recenter themselves and say, oh, Shotoku came here, um, and it's, uh, such and such a miracle happened. And if you're interested, go to that rock, and you see that there's a hole in that, and that's where the water came out when Shotoku struck it with his staff or something like that. And things like that, That um, then this is what I mean by these multiple centers. And so it's... Um, I mean, the one, the, the concept that we haven't uh, mentioned that I think is um, fundamental to this story that I, I should um, bring up is the latter days of the law or the latter days of the Dharma, uh, the Mapo. Um, this is, you know, a concept that, of course, you know, originated in, in China, but according to at least one calculation, it started in fi- uh, 552. And um, there's different uh, dates for when Buddhism came to Japan, but one of the dates for when uh, Buddhism leg- uh, supposedly officially came to Japan is 5. 1052. And, you know, late, most, uh, most later commentators said it was 1052. But what it's saying, either if it's 552, it's saying at the very beginning of Buddhism in Japan, it's the end. It's sort of the beginning of a ge- degenerate age. And 1052 sort of said, you know, we're really sure we're in this degenerate age. And so um, what you, you have is this sort of beginning of this um, medieval paradigm really is responding to this notion that we're impossibly distant from the time of Shoto, uh, Shakyamuni and, uh, and the, the place, you know, thousands of miles, away, uh, thousands of kilometers away and, uh, you know, and thousands of years away. And so you have this, um, uh, you have this real problem, like what's the point of any of our practice if we don't have that connection, if, if basically the world is falling apart? And Shotoku allows uh, people to say that, one, someone who knew the Buddha um, is right here. We can connect to him in some way, whether we connect to him in his sort of um, physical presence and his, uh, the markers of where uh, the marks he left on the Japanese landscape, or we can connect to him through story by telling his story and that recreates him, or his subsequent lives. We can meet Shotoku in some way, uh, some concrete way. So there's that, um, that connection there that, um, uh, that negates uh, some of that. Um, but even more profoundly, it may be a degenerate age in China or India. Uh, Buddhism may have disappeared completely from there, but, you know, and, and multiple uh, medieval um, thinkers argue this. They say um, that actually um, Japan is this, um, is the last bastion, is the last sort of uh, the great shining light, um, and we can then sort of, uh, we have the um, exclusive um, connection to, uh, to the real Buddhist truth. And then that means that a con- certain conceptual map of the world then um, puts Japan at the center, and then within Japan, different, uh, different sites will compete to say, you know, who's really um, sort of the, the source of this authority and who, and who, you know, is basically just a um, sort of shadow of this degenerate age. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. Well, Kevin, we've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you so much um, for being um, such a great insight into the book. It's a wonderful book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to get to but that you want to mention for listeners? And, and I should preface that for listeners by saying there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't talk about. Um, so definitely go and read the book because it's extraordinarily rich. There's all kinds of really wonderful close readings and also um, really a, kind of a model for how we might read images as narrative um, that that I think is extraordinarily useful for anybody, regardless of whether or not you work on Japan. But is there anything in particular um, that you want to mention for listeners that we may not have covered? I don't think so. I mean, I think... um... I, I think the question of identity um, is something that um, you brought up and I, I don't think um, I is fully resolved, certainly in my mind or in this book. And it's, um, it's something that I hope that um, notions of identity notion, uh, ha- and questions of, um, of even this, the usefulness of a concept like cognitive math, I can imagine ways that, certainly within the Japanese context, but um, in a lot of different contexts, that it might be useful. But I really hope is uh, is that a book like this, um, at the very least, uh, annoys a lot of people, and they know it doesn't quite work that way. And but they can articulate why, and it could be uh, sort of a source for further discussion. I mean, I think one of the exciting things about this, I mentioned people like Michael Como and Ikemi uh, Kamenishi. There's a lots of other scholars um, who are working on, say, Shotoku, um, and um, working on, um, uh, you know, similar or issues of mapping, uh, things like that. Um, Max Merman is, is working on you know, Buddhist maps from the uh, Edo period, for example, that 
these are um, great opportunities, I think, for us to really engage with each other and disagree and challenge each other and, and have this conversation. So I hope this book um, uh, is something that will be a, um, a go to further conversations among scholars, and I hope people will uh, be, feel free to contact me too. So, Kevin, now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on the book being out, what's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you? Oh, too much has inspired me. Um, uh, there's there's two main uh, lines that I'm working in. One is something that I haven't quite decided if it's going to be um, uh, just end with this one um, article or it's going to be on. But uh, in a um, fresher volume from my uh, advisor, Professor uh, Shimizu, um, is uh, called Crossing the Sea. In that, I have an essay on uh, what I call the epistemology of art. And... Um, I've been interested in, um, I, I've spent so much time sort of within the medieval Japanese context that when I read the story of some, uh, some miracle, I just sort of take it for granted. I say, oh, of course, the statue got up and walked around and like, and, um, you know, a couple years ago, I started to think, wait a minute, that's kind of crazy. Why would anyone believe that? And so I've been try- trying to think of how, um, trying to consider ways that art, um, creates belief and why people believe uh, astounding things based on um, visual uh, visual arts and, and how that sort of serves as evidence. And that's something that um, I think may be a, a much larger uh, project I'd like to pursue. But more approximately, what I've been working on most lately is um, what are called engie. And um, engie are sort of, uh, miraculous origin stories. And uh, so paintings of miraculous origin stories usually have a temple or a shrine. And it involves usually some um, sacred icon and the stories that go with it and some um, sacred person, uh, like some um, monk or nun who founds the place. And in many ways, it's an extension of what uh, I've, I've been doing in this book. I'm still interested in mapping. In fact, I have a whole chapter on, on actual maps. Um, uh, and I'm especially interested in this notion of identity because I, I'm suggesting that these stories become um, uh, become uh, important um, seeds for people's sense of uh, belonging to a certain place. And then that those tied to multiple sort of stories like that tied together are the seed for regional identity and eventually some identification with a notion of Japan. Um, and, um, you know, there's all sorts of ways this is spoken of the contemporary, uh, in, in the contemporary literature. I'm primarily interested in the 14th century. But so I'm, I'm looking at how this... Um, uh, basically, how the biography of places, and so still working with some of these same, uh, you know, idea of person, place, and narrative, but how the biography of places uh, are a um, seed for um, ident- uh, local identities and eventually sort of a much more um, national level identity. Well, best of luck with that uh, set of projects, Kevin, and thank you again so much for making the time to talk today. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you, and I, uh, I look forward to um, uh, any comments that people have. So, thank you. Hi there, you've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.